Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the run-up to the 1984 elections, a bunch of ambitious political consultants decided the Democrats needed a clean break with the discredited politics of the past. Their data showed a charismatic young candidate could turn out a new generation of voters. They persuaded Joe Biden to complete the paperwork for the New Hampshire primary. In the end, he decided not to run that year, but it was a tentative toe dipped into presidential politics. Biden's first proper presidential run was in 1988, The Democrats' current totem of youth, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, wasn't born until the year after, the same year as the World Wide Web. Now it's her turn to feel frustrated with the old guard. She has twice as many Instagram followers as the nominee. In any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, she said. With 73 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take a big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Joe Biden build a big enough coalition? The Democrats have used their digital convention this week to showcase the breadth of the coalition aimed at ousting President Trump. Moderate Republicans shared a platform with self-proclaimed democratic socialists like Ocasio-Cortez. But climate, minority rights, even capitalism itself are all areas of disagreement for the disparate wings of that coalition. Republicans say Biden will be a Trojan horse for socialism. Can Joe Biden bring these factions together to win the election and then to govern? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, The Washington correspondent. Charlotte, John, how have you been enjoying the DNC? I think it's been fascinating. It's so much more effective than a usual convention, in my view. I mean, there are some awkward moments. You know, in a, usual, in a normal convention when um, the candidate comes out and then they wave and then they point to people in the audience and then they wave again, that feels forced when there are lots of people around. It felt particularly weird when Kamala Harris was doing it to a huge TV screen and pointing to different parts of the screen. But in general, I feel like it's been hugely effective. I mean, you have these video diaries from ordinary people, as well as a very personal appeal from people across the Democratic Party establishment, of course, led by Michelle Obama, who does a fantastic job. So uh, generally, I think they've pulled it off really well. John, how about you? I think this is so much better than an ordinary convention. Uh, the roll call especially, so much better in this format than sort of talking to people around a hall. As a former Rhode Islander, I can confirm that Rhode Island calamari is delicious, and I love that the Rhode Island delegation showed up with food. Um, it's also great to hear John Prine's last song. I thought that was a really moving segment. Yeah, it's been a good convention, I think. There's been so much commentary about COVID-19, about what will go back to normal 
you know, in the future. And it strikes me the party conventions are one thing that really might not, partly because it's just so much easier for the party to stay in control of what's going on. I mean, I covered the 2016 DNC, which span out of control fairly quickly with a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters you know, accusing Hillary Clinton of having stolen the nomination. It was pretty fractious, at least for the first couple of days. This way around, the party gets to stay in control of proceedings. And also, as you guys say, the people who are sort of producing the the speeches, the convention, can just focus entirely on making it look good for TV and and making it look good for social media, rather than having to worry about the the people who are actually the humans there in the hall. So I'm not sure that conventions will go back to to how they used to be, which in a way is a shame because political journalists they're a lot of fun. All right, let's get into this because we've got a lot to talk about this week. We thought that to help us think about what Joe Biden needs to do in order to build the electoral coalition he needs to win in November, we'd spend this episode focusing on three of the speakers from the convention lineup. None of them are exactly household names, at least outside America, but each of them, inevitably slightly crudely, represents one of the big tribes that make up the Democratic Party. One of the first to speak at the convention was Amy Klobuchar. The Minnesota senator was herself a contender for the presidency this year. She gave Biden a huge boost by pulling out the race just before Super Tuesday. We need to unite our party and our country. And to do it, not just with our words, but with our actions. It is up to us, all of us, to put our country back together to heal this country, and then to build something even greater. I believe we can do this together. And that is why today I am ending my campaign and endorsing Joe Biden for president. Klobuchar's sacrifice helped unite the moderate wing of the party to defeat the populist insurgency of Bernie Sanders. This pragmatism plays well in the areas where the election will be hardest fought. Rural, mostly white, working-class parts of the Midwest. Places that swung for Trump last time. Some of the Democrats' biggest gains in the 2018 midterms were made in the Midwest by candidates who argued, as Klobuchar does, that to be progressive, you have to make progress. It's a point she made in an interview with The Economist last year. You look at the facts here. 2018, a woman won governor in the state of Kansas. Not exactly a bastion for Democrats. That's because she fit the state. She wasn't a celebrity candidate, but she knew what she was doing. Uh, We won in Wisconsin. We came back after losing badly in the presidential and won in Michigan with a new woman governor there whose slogan was fix the damn roads. It was very direct. Um, Pennsylvania, we won there. Midwesterners like their politics unthreatening, realistic, and with a touch of humour to smooth over areas of disagreement, she told us. And the facts back her up. She has a record of outperforming her party in Minnesota by wooing independents and moderate Republicans. In 2018, she won re-election by 24 points in a state Hillary Clinton won by two. She carried 42 of the counties that voted for Trump. She also won a majority of non-college-educated voters, a key constituency that moved towards Trump in 2016. A big part of Klobuchar's appeal is an old-fashioned toughness that contrasts with the more politically correct, more online, more youthful wing of the party. She rose from modest beginnings to make her name as a no-nonsense prosecutor in Minneapolis. 
the first female senator to represent Minnesota, she's said to be extremely hard on her staff. She launched her presidential bid in the midst of a snowstorm, as she reminded the DNC this week. When I announced my campaign in the middle of that blizzard on the banks of the Mississippi River to cross the river of our divides, to bring this nation together, to be a president for all of America. Amy Klobuchar is proof that pragmatic Democrats can continue to pick up votes in rural and working class areas, even if her trademark humor might lack the same consistency. You know, the president may hate the post office, but he's still going to have to send them a change of address card come January. Charlotte, let's start with you as a former Midwest correspondent. I don't know about you, but my experience is that college-educated Democrats often forget quite how important non-college-educated whites are in the Democratic coalition. I mean, they they make up a huge share of the electorate. They were 45% of the overall electorate in 16 versus 30% for college-educated whites. And although the story of 2016 in some sense was non-college whites moving even farther away from the Democratic Party towards Donald Trump, there's still quite a lot of non-college whites in the Democratic coalition. And anybody who wins the presidency for the Democrats has to make sure that they hang on to to a good slug of that demographic. Absolutely. It's very important that Democrats continue to reach out to people who are white voters who did not go to college. They form an important part of the Democratic constituency. That being said, there is a reason why Democrats are particularly focused on turnout of black voters this time around. And that's because in 2016, there was a four and a half percentage point decline in black voter turnout compared with in 2012 when Barack Obama was running for re-election. So they want to make sure that those people come out more reliably to the polls this time around. You saw in the convention that Democrats really gave extremely prominent roles, not just to centrists like Klobuchar, but to Republicans who spoke up for for Joe Biden. That includes John Kasich, uh, who ran for president in 2016, Christine Whitman, Susan Molinari, Meg Whitman. Um, It's remarkable, given the risk of infighting that I think scared most Democrats this cycle, the risk of infighting between the party's progressive wing and its centrist wing, the fact that they gave prominence to such to so many Republicans sort of suggests that they're not as worried about that anymore, that the purpose of this convention was to introduce Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the country in a way that broadened their appeal to swing voters and to disaffected Republicans. And you saw that also in the emphasis that the convention is placed on Donald Trump's competence as opposed to his sort of moral unfitness. They think that anyone who thinks that he is a morally unfit racist is probably voting Democratic anyway. And the way to win over more voters is to convince them that Donald Trump is just not up to the job. And I think it has helped in their making that argument to have it from as broad a segment as possible. So basically to have Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and John Kasich basically saying the same thing. I I absolutely agree with you on that. You heard again and again Democrats trying to highlight the ways in which President Trump has proved to be unfit to the task at hand. But there was this tension that you saw, I think, particularly on the first night with Sanders explaining how Biden has embraced many progressive ideals while Kasich was saying that Biden is not so easily swayed. So there's this attempt to have a really wide a really wide tent, I think, a really big tent um, that isn't about specific policies. There are more general goals that are highlighted, you know, that 
Democrats care about climate change, about health care, immigration, child care, um, and above all about American values of decency and caring for one's neighbors and things like that. But they didn't want to get too much into specifics, I think, because Joe Biden uh, really wants to be able to bring every part of this pretty fractious Democratic Party together. And I think that's an artifact in part of how far to the right Republicans have gone and how much of the party is centered around Donald Trump personally, that there is just this huge opportunity for Democrats to grab the center, uh, and they seem to have taken it. So really important limitation, I think, on how the Biden-Harris ticket can campaign in 2020 and were they to win, how they might be able to govern from 2021 onwards is the need to keep non-college whites on board. They're still incredibly important in the Democratic Party. Joe Biden's whole working class Delaware and Pennsylvania shtick is really helpful with that slice of the electorate. And, you know, it's a big part of, I think, why he was chosen to be the nominee in the first place in the primary. But then the ticket also has to make that important demographic fit with the other bits of the Democratic coalition, which we'll talk about a bit more in a moment. Um, We'll hear about the man who probably made the most consequential intervention of the 2020 campaign so far. But first, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. For the best offer on a new subscription, head to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. We continue to report on the postal voting saga in this week's paper. We'll have a podcast on that in the coming weeks. There's also a mind-bending briefing on viruses and a fascinating graphic on support for democracy around the world. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's also in the notes for this episode. Jim Clyburn is one of the most powerful people in Congress and in African-American politics. He's in his second stint as House Majority Whip and has represented his rock-solid South Carolina district for 27 years. It was a decision I made with my feet firmly planted in this community. After a lifetime in politics, he turned 80 last month. He waited until 2020 to make one of the most consequential interventions of his political career. I have said before and wish to reiterate tonight, we know Joe, but more importantly, Joe knows us. Joe Biden's career was on the edge of extinction in February after hopeless results in the early primaries. But then the campaign moved to South Carolina and African-American voters became a factor for the first time. With days to go, Jim Clyburn came out for Biden. A single-digit poll lead turned into a decisive win. Biden carried that momentum into Super Tuesday and secured the nomination. Our challenge is making the greatness of this country accessible and affordable for all. Clyburn's power rests in his roots in the politics of the civil rights era. He ran his local NAACP youth chapter at the age of 12. He was arrested for organizing student sit-ins at South Carolina State University, a historically black college in Orangeburg. He met his wife, Emily, when she brought a burger to his cell. That was the first day that I was arrested. And I met her in jail on that day. About 18 months later, we were married. In 1968, Orangeburg became the scene of a massacre when three protesters were shot and killed. The state governor responded by hiring Clyburn as an advisor on civil rights, and he built his career from there. 
His ability to mobilize the African-American vote has made him a kind of kingmaker. There was an elderly lady in her upper 80s sitting on the front pew of the church, and she beckoned to me. I went over to her. She says, lean down. I need to ask you a question. And I leaned down. And she said, you don't have to say it out loud. But you just whisper into my ear. Who are you going to vote for? I've been waiting to hear from you. I need to hear from you. This community wants to hear from you. I decided then and there that I would not stay silent. Aspiring Democratic presidential candidates are sure to show up at his annual fish fry. Last year's guests got through 4,400 pounds of fish and 6,400 slices of white bread. There's dancing. Clyburn likes to walk into We Are Family by Sister Sledge. Even after this week's razzmatazz at the DNC, Jim Clyburn's speech backing Biden in February still stands as the best articulation of what the vice president's candidacy is about. As I stand before you today, I am fearful for the future of this country. I'm fearful for my daughters and their future and their children's future. This country is at an inflection point. It is time for us to restore this country's dignity, this country's respect. That is what is at stake this year. John Fassman, let's start with you. African-American voters for decades have been the really most loyal constituency in the Democratic Party. They're relatively small compared with non-college whites, where we started with Klobuchar as a share of the electorate. You know, 12% of the electorate in 2016 versus 45% for non-college whites. But they turn out so disproportionately in favor of Democrats and almost as important, they're often to be found in swing states in the Midwest, that getting African-Americans to polls is crucial for the Democratic ticket in 2020. That's absolutely right. And Congressman Clyburn really sits at the intersection of two crucial constituencies for Joe Biden. The first, as you mentioned, is is African-Americans. And African-Americans vote overwhelmingly Democratic. The turnout needs to be higher this year than it was 2016. So that is sort of a mobilization constituency. The goal is to get as many African-Americans to the polls, sending their ballots back by mail as possible. The second constituency is seniors. And Trump in 2016 beat Hillary Clinton among seniors by seven points, 52 to 45. But today, Trump is trailing among older voters. Biden is winning. No Democrat has won the senior vote since 2000 when Al Gore convinced enough people that George Bush wanted to do something terrible, Social Security. So Biden has a real chance this time to steal a march on Trump with senior voters who are less reliably Democratic, but turn out to the polls in large numbers. They're, they're, they're reliable voters. So in that case, it's more of a persuasion gambit that, that Clyburn can help with. I think you've seen Joe Biden try to strike this balance between presenting himself as someone who is a healer, as Clyburn talked about, someone who can restore the country, can heal divisions, um, with this desire to show him as someone who can bring American forward. And the uh, American political landscape 
in August of 2020 looks different than it did in February of 2020 when Jim Clyburn was making that endorsement. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement has gained an enormous amount of momentum. Uh, the theme of racial injustice and racial inequalities has really risen to the top of the political conversation on the left. So I think that uh, Biden will will have to navigate that balance between being a restoration candidate with being someone who who pushes an agenda forward. Um, clearly choosing Kamala Harris as his vice president in large part in response to a very direct campaign by uh, black women voters who have been reliable, the most reliable constituency for Democrats uh, for years now. Uh, that was a clear answer to try to respond to them and show that he very much does value the black vote, that he wants to do what he can to to show that he is going to advance policies that will help them. I think that the choice of Kamala Harris and the endorsement of Jim Clyburn suggests something else that's very important about African-American voters, and that is their pragmatism. Um, Bernie did not have huge support among African-Americans, particularly the older, more reliably voting section of the community. Before the pandemic shut everything down, when I was reporting on South Carolina's primary, one of the things that impressed me about Biden's support is how many African-Americans in Clyburn's district knew Joe Biden or knew of him or had long relations with, with him and sort of trusted him as a figure and also trusted that he would be acceptable to the broadest possible swath of the white population. And that seems to be something that at that time, Democrats themselves weren't sure about. But of course, time has shown that, that those voters in Jim Clyburn's district were correct. Clyburn's endorsement really carried a tremendous amount of weight. You saw machine politics sort of break down in New York over the last couple of cycles with AOC winning in Queens and Jamal Bowman knocking off Elliot Engels in, in my own district. But Jim Clyburn really does retain an incredible ability to get out the vote and people listen to what he says. Just one last point about black voters and black Democrats in particular. Pew Research Center did a poll earlier this year that found that only 28 percent of them considered themselves to be liberal, while, uh, while 70 percent of black Democrats identified as moderate or conservative. So that goes to the pragmatism and centrism that Fasman was just talking about. And then the other thing, just to highlight, because we talked about uh, voter turnout earlier, is that in 2016, the drop in, in black voter turnout was a really big deal, but it was also important to note that it did coincide with different measures on the state level, uh, including ID laws that led to longer lines that targeted black Americans and did make it harder for them to vote, and that that probably had an impact on voter turnout as well. And that's part of why you hear in the messages that Democrats are putting out this week. They want to both inspire people to get to the polls, and also they're making this really uh, forceful case that the vote is being purposefully suppressed in a variety of ways, and we're, they're working to counter that. Okay, thanks, guys. We will be back in a moment to assess the growing power of the youngest woman in Congress. And just a heads up, if you're listening with kids around, there will be some grown-up language in this segment. For all the innovation in the DNC's digital presentations this week, the lineup was full of old-timers. Whether it was party grandees like Nancy Pelosi, the populist Bernie Sanders, or Republican defectors like Colin Powell, 
its top advocates appear to be mostly in their 70s. This is strange for a party that's increasingly reliant on liberal, college-educated youth. A historic grassroots campaign to reclaim our democracy. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, the youngest member of Congress, had just 90 seconds to fulfill the formality of seconding Sanders, the runner-up to the nomination. To our crises of mass evictions, unemployment, and lack of health care. In reality, she holds much more power and celebrity within the party. A movement striving to recognize and repair the wounds of racial injustice, colonization, misogyny, and homophobia. The Sanders campaign swept up several key demographics for the Democrats. Young, urban-dwelling, college-educated women all trend towards AOC's ultra-liberal views. Raised in the Bronx, her mostly Hispanic constituency is also an increasingly important demographic underrepresented among speakers at the DNC. In el espíritu del pueblo and out of a love for all people. Ocasio-Cortez's politics are rooted in activism. In 2016, she joined protests against an oil pipeline crossing Standing Rock Native American land. Two years later, she shocked the party establishment by unseating longtime incumbent congressman Joe Crowley. Crowley had the backing of the unions and dozens of members of Congress. Ocasio-Cortez has support from Black Lives Matter and a group called the Justice Democrats, which was set up to bring down the centrist old guard. Since her election, she's fulfilled her promise of a new kind of politics. She writes her own tweets and provides press-on-nail tips on Instagram. She's earned a reputation as a forensic questioner in House committees. And she won plaudits for calling out sexism in a speech to the House earlier this year. And he called me dangerous. In front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, a fucking bitch. These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman. The congresswoman that not only represents New York's 14th congressional district, but every congresswoman and every woman in this country. Because all of us have had to deal with this in some form, some way, some shape, at some point in our lives. One of only two self-declared socialists in Congress, she's become a favorite target for Fox News and the presidential Twitter feed. Her policy platform is far to the left of Biden's, but she's the leading congressional advocate of a new kind of social justice rhetoric that plays well on campus and on social media. Democratic nominee will have to find some way of harnessing that energy to get that key demographic to turn out for him. Charlotte, let's start with you. Ocasio-Cortez is really interesting, I think, because she represents this very working-class Hispanic district in the Bronx. Hispanics are an important part of the Democratic coalition, lean heavily Democratic, but she's really the darling of college-educated white Democrats, some of whom really like the kind of radicalism of her platform. So she touches on a couple of important demographics in the Democratic coalition, but in policy terms, she's a long way away from where the kind of median non-college white voter or median African-American voter is. Yeah, it's interesting. Since the early 1990s, college-educated voters have become so much more likely to vote Democratic than they were. I was looking at something that said that in 92, in 1992, about 45% of voters with a college education leaned Democratic. In 2016, it was about 10 percentage points more, 53%. And I think that you see something kind of interesting happening going on, particularly now – 
in the post-Obama era where there was this really energized group of young voters who voted for Obama and I think still have a lot of affection for Obama, but are looking for more dramatic change. And she is a political talent. I mean, it's whatever you think of her policies and their practicality, she's a very effective communicator. And so you see this enthusiasm around her uh, that occasionally butts up against the old guard realists in the Democratic Party who say, you know, we've been at this for a long time. Let us do our work in a way that will pass policies that realistically will help the American people. And 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 she represents a challenge to that. She's a disruptive force. John Fadsman, how much power do you think Ocasio-Cortez really has within the party? Because on the one hand, she has this vast social media following, and that's a kind of power in 2020, right? On the other hand, there are some Democrats, as Charlotte alluded to there, who will say, well, hang on. She's really a convenient foil for Donald Trump and for Fox News, who like to portray Democrats as a bunch of radical socialists. And so her influence within the Democratic Party has sort of been exaggerated by Republicans. If I were a Democratic grandee, I would definitely err on the side of overestimating rather than underestimating her power and influence. I mean, whatever the merits of some of the ideas she supports, I happen to think that a federal jobs guarantee and free college are are lunatic. She's just really good at her job. She's a great communicator. She shows up to hearings prepared. She's a terrific questioner. Um, And you're right, she does live rent-free in a lot of Republicans' heads. And that sort of drives them to overestimate her influence, perhaps. And that drives them to turn their fire on her and let someone like Joe Biden appear to be a sort of centrist, not that he isn't a centrist, but let Joe Biden sort of appear to be more centrist and unthreatening than they otherwise might think he is. So I think she serves a very useful purpose within the party and as an outside face of the party. I don't know, though, Fasman. Do you think that, I mean, when I was looking through, um, as we all are subscribed to the various uh, emails coming from the Republican National Committee, I mean, I think that the, the Republicans want to have... AOC represent all Democrats. They want they want to cast Biden as a radical leftist in her mold, right? Um, so I wonder whether I wonder how much Trump will build on that, and whether that will be continue to be a common form of attack going forward in a way that undermines Biden. I think they were always going to do that, right? They were always going to portray Democrats as socialists. I think that that they will try to make her the face of the party, but Biden still has a chance to distance himself from her. I think that's a, that's a, that's a useful role she has in the party. Charlotte, Ocasio-Cortez is an interesting figure as well because she's a prominent Hispanic politician. Hispanic voters tend to be somewhat more culturally conservative than some of the other bits of the Democratic coalition. But Ocasio-Cortez is really, really not culturally conservative and certainly not conservative when it, when it comes to policies. So she has two, you know, to some extent, her Hispanic identity in politics points in different direction to the kind of pitch and the platform she has and this very strong appeal she has, in particular to college-educated Democrats on the left of the party. So there's a kind of interesting contradiction there. A big question this time around is whether the turnout rate for Latino voters will rise. In 2016, it was about steady at uh, 47, a little over 47 percent of those eligible to vote, of Latinos eligible to vote did vote, um, compared with 48% in 2012. And this year, the number of, of Latinos who are eligible will, for the first time, be the biggest racial and ethnic group. So if they turned out in full force, they would 
have quite a big impact. And the question is whether they will, particularly in some crucial swing states like Florida. Democrats have placed their hopes on the the Latino electorate for a long time and have been have been consistently frustrated. I think that that suggests a couple of things. Number one, turnout levels tend to be much lower among Latinos than among than among African Americans or white voters, particularly white college educated voters. And the other thing to bear in mind is that the Latino electorate is just is is incredibly politically diverse. You know, a Venezuelan or a Cuban in Florida is not going to vote like a first generation Mexican immigrant in California. And neither of them are going to necessarily vote like a like a Mexican American, like a seventh generation Mexican American in, in Texas. I think if you look at the Republican Party in Texas and California, both are heavily Latino, which 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 suggests a tremendous amount of ideological diversity and a voting bloc that Democrats can't just sort of count on and assume is in their corner. I think it's interesting because the way that we as journalists traditionally cover elections with good reason is about trying to understand different portions of the electorate, trying to understand how they voted in the past. We have a presidential forecast which looks at this in real detail at at different parts of the population and different parts of the country to analyze Biden's chances of winning. And one of the things that I found most interesting about this convention compared with any convention I've ever watched or covered was that you really had the uh, various leaders from different parts of the Democratic Party saying something that, with a few exceptions, was pretty clear, which was that this is an election that is about Biden to some extent. He's a decent person. He's a public servant. Um, But really, it's actually an election about you, the voter. That's what they were trying to say. And Obama made the point that no one person can do anything, and it's up for up to citizens to embrace their responsibility as voters. And it was this weird blend of optimism and nihilism where the party seemed to want to remind the American people of common values and of what's possible while conveying a really grave risk of what will happen if they don't turn up and vote Donald Trump out of office. And so that's a pretty broad message that reaches a variety of different parts of the of the Democratic Party. And so I think there's a question going up to Election Day with whether that kind of that broad message that it's not really about Biden, it's about you, the voter, and it's about a very general conception of American values and trying to defend those values, whether they can keep that going between now and November. That's a really good point. And it's a reminder of how, in some sense, for all the speeches that have been made this week about Donald Trump's threat to American democracy with a small d, for the Democratic Party with a big D, Donald Trump, while deeply alarming, also helps them to hold together all these disparate factions that they need to come together in order to build a coalition that's that's big enough to win the presidency. Before I let you go, we have a quiz... The Economist reported on the Democratic Party convention in its very first issue on the 2nd of September 1843. The party was divided over when the convention should actually be held and eventually decided on May 1844. Democrats had lost the 1840 election to William Henry Harrison. In what way did President Harrison distinguish himself from his predecessors? Um, Didn't Harrison give an extremely long inauguration speech and then die a few weeks later? He didn't want to wear a coat because he wanted to look sort of virile and then... That uh, sounds great. I'll go with that. And then that. they killed him. Yes. 
Harrison did indeed die after just 31 days in office, which was the shortest tenure of any president. Well done, John. Well done, Charlotte. The fever that killed him... I hardly deserve credit for that. The fever that killed him was thought to have been caused by the bad weather at his inauguration. Attempts to cure him included a series of bloodlettings. When those didn't work, doctors treated him with Ipecac to induce vomiting and castor oil as a laxative. His final indignity, though, was to be administered a potion containing crude oil. Sign me up for this physician. He sounds extremely competent. (laughs) You'll have to go and check whether he's in your network, Charlotte, but he sounds like he could be just the man for you. (laughs) Harrison's death established the constitutional precedent that the vice president steps in to complete the term. Who was Harrison's veep and successor? What about, um, it's not Taft. Why am I, not John Tyler. Yeah, no, it was Grover Cleveland. No, I don't know. John Tyler or Grover Cleveland. I can't remember where they fall. It was John Tyler. So Charlotte, you get half a point for that because I think you hedged between um, Cleveland and Tyler. But that's half a point more than Mr. Fassman gets. Historians agree that Tyler's was an unremarkable presidency as there's ever been. But he did secure America's first trade deal with Imperial China, the Treaty of Wangsha. So there you go. Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. That's all from us. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like the podcast, please let everyone know and leave a review in your podcast app. And just a quick additional note, we're advertising for a couple of interns in the US at the moment. We're hiring two fellows to write about American politics and policy. Please send a 600-word article to AmericanFellowship at Economist.com. There'll be a link to the full job posting in the show notes to this episode. Thanks, Charlotte. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>